Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. I think this trailer does a good job, Andy. Andy, I'm not kidding you. I think it does a good job. It is uh, a nice trailer. I watched it. I'm like, oh, they they do a good job of building the mystery. You get some suspense. You get some action. but And you get a hint of the story. But it's not a, a big 
you don't really know. And I, I thought they did a really nice job of creating that setup for this whodunit. Right. It's a different kind of secret that they're trying to keep in this trailer, right? It's it, We need to know the political story, and they can give a lot away in, uh, in the political story without giving up, uh, you know, the ultimate whodunit. And I think they, they did a great job. The other thing I like so much is the, the there's the, uh, the uh, scene where Kirk stands up on the bridge and they smash Zoom into him and he says, signal our surrender. We surrender. And uh, they make a big deal about that in the trailer even though it happens you know 30 or 40 minutes into the film and it it's ultimately a, a fairly predictable move uh as that that's a real highlight in the trailer uh that i think works really well it sells it well it sells it as a different kind of star trek certainly from what we have had seen the the previous films yeah absolutely and you know they don't even reveal that it's you don't even necessarily know that it's a whodunit because it, it's like who done what you don't know we don't know that gorkon's been killed do we all we know is that we think that it's just that the Enterprise attacked the the Klingon cruiser, and that there are there are elements on the Enterprise that think they didn't. Right. Well, and we see people walking around shooting, but we don't know, we don't know that it was all like about a big assassination. Right. That's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did a fine job, and and I think you know, not to belabor the point, this does not look like the Final Frontier. It doesn't look like many of the previous films. It has a different vibe all the way through. But do you like it? Did this, did this trailer make you want to see the movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, there was there was question that, uh, I mean, by this point, uh, Star Trek uh, The Next Generation was into its third season, maybe starting its fourth by the time this was released. And so I think the big question is like, why why are they still doing... Star Trek movies with the original cast. Why haven't they shifted to the next gen team? And um, and that was, I think, for me, a big question I had when I saw this. I'm like, God, they're still doing these guys? But I think they did a great job of creating a mystery and just kind of this thrill with this trailer that made it feel like it was still worth watching. Instead, they just used the next generation... Uh ship and make it look like the current one and then put a bunch of old men on it right apparently uh and i i'm not as as finely tuned with the series as you are to know oh that's a hallway from uh the next gen oh that's the med lab from the next gen or whatever you know i i'm sure they used lots of bits bits and pieces from it um since hey it was shooting right next door why not when you need another star trek element just steal from the show but um yeah i I just think it all uh, lent to making a, a nice feeling uh, a trailer. That, that is what tonight is all about, is getting you more finely tuned. That's what it's about. It's to finely tuning of Andy. The Klingon Empire has 50 years of life left to it. To offer Klingons a safe haven within Federation space is suicide. They're animals. Jim, they are dying. And you, Captain Kirk, are to be our first olive branch. Me? The galaxy stands at a crossroads. This is the Starship Enterprise. We've been ordered to escort you to your meeting on Earth. Guess who's coming to dinner? I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. One warrior to another? Right. On the verge of peace. The undiscovered country. The future. On the brink of war. We come in peace, and you blatantly defy that we haven't fired. According to our databanks, we have. I shall blow you out of the stars. Now, 
the crew of the Starship Enterprise will not be the instigators of full-scale war on the eve of universal peace. They're coming about. Battle stations. Fights not to win battles. Incoming. Signal our surrender. Captain? We surrender. But to end them forever. Real everybody, I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, Nick Meyer is back. This time with the 1991 Who Done It with Pointy Pointy Ears, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you are a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get better chances of being a part of our Listener's Choice episodes. Just head over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. Andy, I have been reading your notes. I am detecting a little bit of grumpiness. I don't know why. I feel like there's a little grumpiness. I'm coming into this a little bit defensively because I'm going to tell you the jig is up. This is the one. This is my favorite Star Trek film of the original cast. Well, I know you're just saying that. and But then next week, when, when you finally rewatch Star Trek Generations, I know that will take its place. Nobody's taking that seriously. <laughs> Nobody is. In fact, you are damaging your own reputation I by am. just saying that oh. about somebody else. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I adore this movie. I any of the little things that you say about it I it's not just one of my favorite Star Trek films this is one of my favorite films like it's in it's a top 20 film it's it it's up there for me I deeply enjoy this movie deeply 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 wow so don't mess it up for me okay I that's won't. all I'm saying I'm far be it for me <laughs> uh go ahead what do you think lay it on me let's get started um I really love this film too so, uh, so there. <sighs> it's no. I think it's a great film. I do have some some uh, some uh, quibbles, but I think they're just that. I think they're just quibbles. I don't think they're anything too big. I mean, there are things that happen. There are some uh, bits and pieces with uh, with different elements that I kind of uh, roll my eyes at a little bit. But on the whole, I think that this is a really well made film, and I think that it's it has a nice. Uh, pace, a nice feel to it, um, just a nice vibe overall. I think that the story construction is uh, just really exciting for the franchise. And I end up just, I mean, I really have a great time with this one. And I was very, um, very happy when I saw this in theaters to see something that really just felt like the right way to sign off with the original crew. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and again, you know, your joke about generations notwithstanding, it makes that so much more disappointing as a result of, of the success for me of this film. Uh, I am delighted by it. It starts with the look and feel of the film for me. And, you know, we, we talked a, a bit about the sets uh, being pillaged uh, in large part from the next generation shooting next door. And, and I actually think that makes it work really well. At this point now, once you come to terms with the fact that the Enterprise Bridge is just going to be completely upended every single time you see a movie with the Enterprise in it. Okay, fine. You actually start to see, uh, I think, the 
the visual connection between this period in time, the Kirk-led bridge or Kirk-led enterprise period in time and the Picard period in time. I actually think their search for budget cuts uh, and, and, you know, reusing set pieces works in favor of the visual style and tone of this film. It's, it's fantastic. Even the, um, the, the Excelsior bridge is, uh, all the panels are reused from the Enterprise D in Next Generation Battle Bridge to make it look that much more advanced. I think it works very well, uh, in this film. And, uh, so, so the, the visual tone and style, um, I'm already in. This is, I, I mentioned last week we're getting toward the sweet spot. This movie represents the sweet spot for me. This is the Enterprise I'd want to spend my career on. See, and and you're so good at knowing the differences between the ships. I, I know that I know that Meyer, in his love for submarine movies, went through and did yet another redesign of kind of the way that he wanted it to be. Like he said, I wanted it to feel even more like a submarine. I want the hallways to be even more narrow and uh, darker. I kind of want to have kind of that tone through the whole thing. I think that's interesting that he he goes to those lengths to to adapt it to that kind of Horatio Hornblower vibe that he loves so much. I don't know if it needed it, but I didn't have a problem with it. I you know I I, I quite enjoyed just kind of the look and feel of everything going on in this one. I feel like this is the movie that killed Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> Well, I, I, if you can say it that way, sure. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about that because I, I'm really curious of your take of Roddenberry and his vision of the future and how well it works in cinematic storytelling. What's your understanding of really kind of Roddenberry and the world that he was, the future that he was portraying? Well, Roddenberry was a purist. I, I, you know, he he really believed in the best in people. And, and I, I don't necessarily think that he believed the future of, uh, who am I to put words in Roddenberry's mouth? My sense of Roddenberry's perspective is not so much that he felt that what Star Trek was, was what the future was going to be. But I believe he felt that Star Trek's role was in support of moving humanity in a better direction. The, the way that when people talk about him, they're always like, yeah, he, you know, he envisioned a future where, you know, everybody was at peace and, you know, we all uh, kind of got along and it was just the best of people, you know, and that's kind of my impression of what people say about him as far as mm-hmm. what he was aiming for with the show. I And it sounds like what you're saying is that, he he was using the show to emphasize or to just try try pushing society in that direction as a whole. I don't think he was simple enough to believe that his view of the future of the 23rd century whenever was going to be completely free of bigotry. Uh, but I do believe that he felt uh, bigotry on screen uh, and and showcasing it and showcasing things like torture and showcasing you know gore and blood and the and the militaristic results uh, that, that come of uh, the increased display of of politics and and what comes of it that's that's just not the intention of Star Trek right we we want to explore a better future and Star Trek's going to push us in that direction unless we get mired in doing the same crap that's on TV already. And, uh, and and I think that's, to a point, that's true. And I think the challenge that Star Trek VI aimed to solve is, or, or aimed at least to engage, is that, um, you know, can you portray those things on screen and still deliver a message 
uh, of ultimately, uh, you know, a positive outcome? Can we learn a lesson and still be able to play in these deeper cultural waters uh, than he was ever willing to really openly embrace? Well, yeah, and that's the thing, because I think Roddenberry, like his his mentality or his his vision that he was trying to portray, I think it can work in a TV series pretty well because it's like it's very episodic. It's like you can have this little adventure as they kind of explore this society and this society or whatever. I think it worked in context of what the shows were like. Um, and, and Next Generation, I mean, he certainly had kind of a hand in that, in that direction. You can feel it in that show too. When you look at it, like what, it takes to make a film work. I don't think it works as well in context of a film. And so when people say, you know, oh, you know, this this is the one that killed Roddenberry or whatever, or just like, you know, or some of the previous films, you know, it sounded like, especially Nicholas Meyer, it sounded like he was always at odds with with uh, Roddenberry as far as what Roddenberry's Storming, vision yeah. for Star Trek, uh, Star Trek was. Uh, but it's like, I sometimes I just like, you know, it, it's a two-hour story. It needs to have... Tension. It needs to have uh, the characters need to have arcs. There needs to be this this growth and everything. And if we're leaving all that out, it's it's not making for an engaging film. And so, to a certain extent, I kind of agreed with Meyer, or at least to hearing some of these people involved in in trying to get this story told. Then I'm like, yeah, maybe Roddenberry uh, was wrong pushing that for this particular film, or you know, for any of the other ones. I I don't really feel like I'm, I I can say he's wrong, but I also think there's a lot about this that you're right, and I would submit that Star Trek the motion picture is what you get when you aren't willing to embrace some of the more uh, you know basic exercises in conflict on film. By all rights, we can say I think collectively it works, but we can also say it works once. Yeah, and it works once maybe with the benefit of hindsight. The stuff that he really railed against. They do on screen in this film in cerebrally violent ways. You know, our own deep scene dive tonight is is an incredibly sort of violent act that, you know, if there's a single moment that I feel just in my gut would have caused him to just retch, it is this scene. And I think it's one of the strongest scenes in the film. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. It just makes me wonder, like, where that line is for him, you know, like what and and why some of this stuff wouldn't work. The story has it in here and plenty of stories have racial um, problems or, or deal with issues and you see stuff happening on screen that it's like it pains you to watch. But that's a part of the story. And and by having a story about it that kind of resolves those issues it's you know these characters are finding growth i think that and, and in turn i think the audience kind of experiences some of that uh, you know cathartically through the process of watching the film i think there's a fantastic conversation that spock and kirk have toward the end of the film about you know they're kind of uh, you know kind of the old ones now and and it's it, i can't remember the exact conversation but it was just it was beautifully spoken i think spock asks the question of kirk about you know is it you know are we going to be able to kind of move along with this or have, have we kind of has has society's need of us kind of passed and you know it it opens for a lot of really interesting questions about kind of 
people at these periods of time when these changes are happening and how they kind of have to step back and let these things happen, even if it's uncomfortable for them. That's the gift of resolution that we get. And I, I think that uh, it, it's the perennial question anytime a new Star Trek comes out, and one I'm sure we are going to need to address again when we look at the Abrams uh, reboot. Can Star Trek exist in its purity of intention and still deliver an entertaining, rollicking action film? Right. Or, or, or is the intention of Star Trek and the universe that Roddenberry built lost as a result of our search to actually make it a profitable, entertaining gesture? Right. I wonder if that conversation is sort of, you know, over the years and over the generations and the series and the, the different casts and crew in Roddenberry's absence, has it grown so much beyond that that, um, you know, that we're not thinking quite so much about intention anymore? Yeah, right. I I feel like this film actually does resolve in in a nice way, and I know he had line by line criticisms uh, about this film that were largely ultimately ignored. Uh, and to the to the credit of the story, I I think this just works. I love the cultural connection to uh, to the Soviet Union. I love the connection to Chernobyl. I love the whole question: What if the wall comes down in space? Uh, I love the changes they made, further evolving the Klingons uh, as a race that's really worth. Uh, uh, continuing to watch and and understand, not just as the ultimate kind of thugs, uh, you know, in uh, uh, kiss boots, uh, but as a real race of substance that is on par with, um, you know, what we've always seen as the the federations from the federations perspective, which is always portrayed as you know, uh, racially better than yeah. almost everything else, right? <laughs> right <laughs> Certainly yeah. better than Klingons. So uh, all of these things, these connections really resonate with me. I think this film does such a great job of making an entertaining story that is a cultural mirror uh, that I love so much to talk about. So I'm, it's very satisfying. Well, they, they kind of had put themselves in a position where, you know, it's probably a, a, a good idea at some point to figure this Klingon issue out since we have Worf in the next generation. There obviously yeah. needs to be this this change in views so that, hey, now we have Klingons who are working in the Federation. That's a great point. We need to see that this this is the the, the milestone that changes the way we think about um, you know, that, that that changes the way we think about integration. Right. Right? And and you know migration and immigration and uh, and that's what leads Worf to the bridge of the Enterprise. True, absolutely true. Yeah. What do you think of old Captain Sulu? <laughs> I love Captain Sulu. I love that he's there. I love that he drinks tea out of a cup and not some sort. Why? Why haven't they learned about travel mugs? Like some sort of a lidded beverage, or you Who, know, if this is the future, they could just it could magnetically seal to the table once it's put down until the captain's about that? hands on it. You know, yeah. how about that? Know. Uh, we know this whole the premise of the entire show is, or the entire film, it, it centers on magnets. Yeah, right. <laughs> we we better be able to understand. Yeah, and, and you'd think, I mean, these gravity things are awfully uh, key. You think that that's something they would, you know, have easy access to is is magnet boots or something that you could slip into quickly so that you could get around more easily. Should the gravity thing malfunction, 
Right. And you'll you'll note that they never uh they never once found any innocent pair of gravity boots. Yeah. Did right. you notice that? Right. There were no other pairs of gravity boots. That's not the first place you'd go look is the shelf of all the extra gravity boots to see if they were put back there. Uh and I find <laughs> that that is a thing that I find funny. Like there are there are only two pair and they're the guilty pair. Right, exactly. There are a lot of little issues like that. It's you know, it's it's a, it's a whodunit with some some weak links. <laughs> I this is me saying la 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 la. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I'm not uh, going to listen to this. I'm not going to hear this now. <laughs> I, I have to say, um, it was great seeing Rand yeah. again as the Excelsior communications officer. Yes, that was great. This is her last appearance in one of the Star Trek films. She will pop up in the shows, but not again in a in a show. I mean, in a film. I loved seeing uh, Christian Slater. Yeah, thanks, Christian Slater's Show mom. Up in in shadow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Christian Slater's mom. She was casting director, so there you go. There you go, and he was he he's great in shadow. It always seems so weird. Doesn't he have me. a similarly uh, kind of a, a bit shadowy part in? Um, that was it the contender i don't know the answer to that i feel like maybe no i don't i actually don't know about that well and and speaking of casting the star trek universe is very good about reusing its actors and we certainly um see that in spades here we have david warner who we just saw in star trek 5 back but now as as uh, gorkon the uh, the it, one who gets yeah. assassinated this is the role he was meant to play <laughs> not, not the uh, not the, one of the, the god the ridiculous villainy. No, he was terrible <laughs> in the last one. Um, Michael Dorn, we mentioned Worf already. He's he's back or he's in this as his own grandfather, which I thought was a nice little touch. The most uh, he is the most visible act, single actor in uh, across Star Trek. He's been in the most the most minutes of Star Trek include Michael Dorn. When you say the most minutes, is that like just all properties? All the properties. Really? Yeah. Is that uh, because... What other shows did he end up on then? Uh, Well, he did uh, uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, most of them, not including, obviously, the movies, too. Yeah, right, But that was... That's like straight up 14 seasons of TV show. That is crazy. Yeah. Well, good for him. Yeah, he's great. Love Michael Dorn. He gets to speak a little bit of Klingon, not a lot. Uh, you know, we should mention the Klingon in this is kind of fun because of the the ties to Shakespeare, which I think is kind of funny because the the you yeah. know there's that fantastic line, oh, you've never heard Shakespeare in you, until you've heard him in the ori- in his the original Klingon, or whatever. And nobody corrects it. I love that <laughs> which so much. Is so funny. But this is the film that kind of spurred on this crazy uh, Klingon craze with people um, taking Shakespeare and actually translating it to Klingon and there have since been performances of Hamlet in Klingon um, I don't know if you watched any of uh, of the performances but it's really <laughs> it's really interesting to watch these these actors like performing and, and the actors who do it you know there are interviews with them and they're talking they're like well yeah I I I didn't know what I was getting into and then <laughs> when I tried out for this and, and one of them was like, well, I had to look at it like, you know, an Italian opera where you don't really know the words. You just are kind of saying, you, you have to learn the, the phrases and just kind of say it and just, you know, that's what you're saying, but you don't that's really. That's brilliant. I was like, God, that is just grueling. But yeah, I listened to like the to be or not to be speech and the, uh, uh, I knew him Horatio bit and. 
it's fantastic. But, it, but it's funny because I they, have not. That's not. I have not invested in any uh, of my time in watching that stuff. You are vastly ahead of me in this it, area. It's really interesting. But the the great part is that they translate the Klingon too. And if you're kind of familiar with the play Hamlet, you can read along with it, and you can see how they had to translate it. Uh, into Klingon. And the translations are really funny because it's all like sci-fi related. You know, it's like, you know, instead of like my saber or whatever, it's my phaser and and things. And it's just like, you know, I don't know. It just, it made me laugh because they actually like put a lot of thought and energy into making this work, which was wow. just mesmerizing. And an interesting thing, when the guy who wrote the Klingon dictionary starting when, uh, I think it was really Star Trek three. um, there was not the verb to be in it. Um, and I, I, he had a reason, but I can't remember what it was. But anyway, when it came time to actually translating the to be or not to be line uh, for Christopher Plummer to say, he's like, oh, I don't really have that. I can't say to be or not to be. So he, he came up with something, uh, a phrase that he thought would work like, and I can't remember what it was, but Christopher Plummer really hated it, hated you know how it flowed. And so... They worked it, and they finally came up with the to be or not to be that Christopher Plummer does say in the film, which it's an interesting... Well, now it's all I can think about is how do they possibly translate to be or not to be without saying the verb to be? Yeah, well, that was the problem. And and they were saying like That's to, what I, yeah. to... It was like to continue or not to continue or something like that. Or, or yeah. yeah, I can't remember what it was, but they finally found a way to uh, to do it to Christopher Plummer's satisfaction do you do you find the uh allusions to uh, you know the the vulcan's uh proverb only nixon can go to china i mean of course it's it's an obviously ridiculous uh you know line the shakespeare and the original klingon is obviously ridiculous those kinds of things the sort of uh, literacisms uh throughout the script i love Right, I I find them funny every time, and I think they're I think it just makes the script that much more sort of charming. Especially if you know the uh, anything about the original material, it makes it just sort of a nod and wink. Do you find it funny as well, or do you fall on the side of the criticism that it's too much tongue in cheek? It's too ridiculous. Uh, it takes you out of the film because these things are so obviously so far from true. I I kind of like it because uh, I mean. I think there's something telling about a society that will adopt a person to a point where they think it's their own um, because they're so convinced or they're convinced that in order for somebody to be that good, it has to be, uh, you know, one of it has to be them. Right. Yeah. And and Nicholas Meyer uses the example cultural appropriation in in Nazi Germany. They started saying that, oh, it, I mean, he got the line from Nazi Germany when they would say, oh, mm-hmm. you haven't heard Shakespeare until you've heard him in his original German, because yes. they basically tried to pull Shakespeare into saying that he was a German. And so I, I think it's interesting that he does that. I like the context. I like how it works. It does bother me a little bit in the world of the movie, because part of me is just like, you know, why are they always quoting like ancient Earth uh, people and bringing it back to ancient Earth history. Don't the Klingons have their own history to reference? Do, don't the Vulcans have their own history to reference? In the context of this universe, it kind of irks me a little bit. But in context of a, a an American cinematic viewer in the '90s through now, um, in that world, I do enjoy it. Well, and and I think to your point, right? If you take get rid of those 
things, right? And you say, oh, you know, this, I am now quoting, you know, Gerblaschkenschnach, the great, <laughs> the great That's Klingon the best name ever. poet. Gerblaschkenschnach. <laughs> <laughs> the the great Klingon poet and and suddenly now we're creating a narrative a literary narrative and a narrative history of uh, that is of zero relevance to us as an audience right does that then keep us less engaged in the scene do we care uh, that is for me when it comes back to start it, to these mentions of Shakespeare and and those things it ties me more into the scene it keeps me it keeps me paying attention because I don't want to miss the next nod the next wink I don't want to miss it because it's sharp and it sometimes comes pretty quickly and and you, you have to stop and think about it and think about the relevance kind of in the back of your mind and then get back into the mode of the film and for me it's it's more of a of a of a exercise. Uh, and and that's one of the reasons I find it so attractive uh, that it it sort of breaks the fourth wall. I mean, really. I mean, it, it it's it's it would be as effective as well. You know, the Vulcan proverb. You know, only Nixon can go to China, and then Spock looks at Cameron and says, "Know what I mean, right? I mean, <laughs> that that am I right? Like that's kind of what we're talking about." Well, and I mean, and that's what I'm saying is like it it works well as context of a movie viewer. Uh, like I really end up enjoying it because it is that it it makes it really fun to watch. It draws me in. But in context of the world, it's like I, I don't buy it, <laughs> you know, but it's yeah, easy for me to look past because as a movie viewer, I find it very fun. Yeah, I mean, as a screenwriting tool, it, this trope in this film, I think, is is super intentional. I don't think anybody at any point had ever said, I hope they buy it. Yeah. I, I think it's an example of cultural appropriation that fits in the narrative of the story. And it's also funny, even if it takes you out of the script for a minute. I, I think that's fair to say. I'll go with that. Yeah. What do you where where do you stand on the uh, Rurapente bit? I, I know some people feel it really bogs down the story. Um, I I actually find it a really um, rewarding part of the story. I like kind of the just how it um, uh, how it works as far as uh, Kirk and McCoy getting kind of thrust into this this kind of much deeper world of the Klingons, where they're basically on on trial and have to go to this prison planet. I think that it is a really fascinating element of the story. There are elements in Rurapente that uh, that for me kind of bog it down a little bit. You know, I, I think some of it feels a little prison cliche once they're there. Um, and you know, it, it toward the end of their time on Rurapente, it has one of my uh, one of the moments of the film that it's probably the most frustrating for me, and that's when when the uh, Kirk, you know, and the and the shapeshifter. Uh, doubles as him and they're fighting each other and then the the prison guards show up and end up disintegrating one of them luckily it's the bad kirk it's just like that is like you know it's it, i don't know it was just very frustrating because it's just so kind of just i don't know it was just one of those you know deus ex machina moments that kind of irks me but it still is fun i still end up enjoying it and i think mainly because i think it ends that scene ends in just one of the great uh, jokes where it's like this the trope of the bad guy giving away the plans. And then just as he's... <laughs> because you're going to die anyway. I'll tell you, it is... Oh, and then they get, they get uh, uh, beamed out. And that, I think, makes up for the fact that fake Kirk just got disintegrated. Now, I know you have a problem with Spock and his, uh, you know, his ability to deduce 
clearly the answer. Oh, yeah. I, I know that's about, but I think in this film it actually works better than we've seen it happen in prior films. Well, it does work better than the whole thing with the whale and the, the probe and like, yeah. oh, listening to that t- tone, I can tell all of this stuff that gives away the entire, you know, reason behind everything. That was nonsense in Star Trek Four. Here, um, the fact that, you know, he does this, you know, deduction to, you know, he pulls the, I don't know if it's, if it was, um, I don't know who said it, uh, Sherlock Holmes or whatever, the, you yeah. know, take away whatever is impossible and, and you're left with. You know, no matter how Whatever's improbable, left, no matter how improbable is the truth. Yeah. yeah. And, and they just, it's like barely a conversation. And then they're like, oh, it's a cloaked bird of prey. And they're like, that's it. That's the answer. And they like, don't question it anymore. It's just like, okay, well, we figured it out. And I'm just like, God, <laughs> because that, that is was... clearly the only most improbable thing. Right. They've decided that that's the only thing. We're not even going to think about it anymore. Exactly. No, no need. Put away the whiteboard. Yep. We've got it. <laughs> And I'm lo and okay behold, and I they're think, right. <laughs> I, I think the reason it works is because of the Shakespeare set or of the uh, the Sherlock Holmes setup. I really think that that's what makes it work because we don't actually need to watch them brainstorm. I think they've they they need to move the story along, and that's one of the things I like so much about this film. The whodunit part doesn't get bogged down too much. Like it it moves along at a clip. When uh, Valeris is orchestrating the search of the ship, we get to see lots of great new places in the ship. We get to explore these <laughs> like the handy of it. phaser drawer. <laughs> Like the handy phaser drawer, and we get to see what possible thing were they cooking that doesn't like you know the dough is frozen. Well, this wasn't going to cook anyway. Like they needed some kind of a, a gaff. And why is there a uh, kitchen anyway? Don't they like right? Why is there a kitchen anyway? Yeah, that's right. Can't they? Don't they have? Uh, they they clearly did not have food replicators yet. But again, I really like the feel of it. I like the, oh, sure. the sort of submarine feel of it. I think that's great. Uh, and it, <laughs> it was just a prop kitchen right. on the Enterprise. It was, no, it's really a prop kitchen. We need that's we need to give some is. people some jobs. So. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Socialism, folks. Oh dear. Um, anyway, so I I actually really like it. I I like the way it uh, it comes together there, and I like the the tour of the ship that we get. I think they they play that really nicely. Yeah, it's a great excuse. I a great excuse. It's, they, it, these are minor quibbles for me. Really, it, it's yeah. not a huge issue. It is a quibble. One question I had though, it was really strange to me at the end when they get the the note like, oh, we have to return. They're decommissioning the Enterprise. It's like what? The last one made it through f- three seasons of TV, plus the huge period of time there they've all kind of left the ten year gap or whatever. Then f- you know five movies uh, before it totally gets destroyed, and or four movies and however many I don't even remember anymore. How many movies have we watched now? And and then <laughs> and they finally have to decommission the ship, and it it goes plummeting. Oh yeah, it's part three where it gets destroyed. Um, but then it's like. This ship lasts for like a movie and they're like, oh, we have to decommission it already. It's purely a a, a design in the story to say we need an out for this crew because this is their last film. We need kind of something to do a sign off with them. But see, I I heard it differently, and and this is why I've always had it in my head. It wasn't that they were going to decommission the ship itself and put it in a museum. The ship is still pretty new. But what they were going to do, in fact, was decommission the crew because it was the crew that wasn't even supposed to be out there. They At the very beginning, he says, you know, we're due to stand down uh, in a couple of months. And so um, 
like this was Starfleet saying, okay, okay, come on home. We're going to, we're putting this to bed because you guys are in trouble anyway. I don't think you decommission people, Pete. You only decommission. I want to to decommission people. (laughs) I know you do. (laughs) But you you decommission ships and planes and, and, you know. I hear you, and yet I still feel like there's room in this universe for decommissioning a crew. (laughs) (laughs) They need to be put into a museum. Let's do that. Okay. Okay. All right. Harv Bennett is gone. Which means, to a certain extent, we'd have to worry about him rewriting the script himself. <laughs> I feel like we got we dodged a bullet on that one. You know what I found interesting? Listening to the story of kind of Harv Bennett and what he wanted to do with this uh, sixth movie. He was convinced that what they needed to do is get away from these old people and do something with some youth. Top Gun was so popular. And he wanted to do Top Gun in outer space. So he wanted the sixth film to be the story of Kirk and Spock in their academy days, having adventures. And I I heard that and I was like, how interesting that they actually kind of took some of his concept there and brought it all the way to the reboot. Yeah, I I found myself wondering if that just how intentional versus coincidental that was. No, I I agreed. I I don't know if that was an intentional sort of thing, but I was like, it's interesting that that was the direction that they did end up taking. The reboots, you know, it's not a bunch of uh, 50 plus people uh, out in space. You know, they did go for this Academy Days sort of thing, the beginnings of everything. I I, I thought it was an interesting, um, you know, maybe it's just those, the, the people understand that modern audiences really want to see kind of the the youth sitting in those chairs or something yeah yeah i think it, it you know i i think this story was a great way to uh use to get one more film out of this aging crew yeah is there a way to make this thing interesting i mean guy by 90 we're not talking 50 plus i mean shatner was over 60 leading a crew of people over 60 years old and in in a swashbuckling action submarine film. Yeah. That's an amazing thing. It it really is. I mean, you know, uh, they mentioned as they were kind of putting the script together that Letterman, you know, was making jokes on his show about, you know, uh, the search for Geritol. (laughs) Yeah. it, It was easy to make fun of this because it is these old people going on this space adventure. You don't see that. Like, I couldn't imagine nowadays seeing, like, take a show from the, the, 80s or something and bringing bring that whole cast forward now that they're in their 50s or plus and have them leading a franchise like it's it's an odd thing to envision i i I think our our the it's all shifted so much toward youth 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 that i think it's hard for people to just kind of wrap their heads around that these days james Doohan was 72 (laughs) wow was he really right he does a good fall he does uh, I mean, you know, or seventy one when the movie came out. Yeah. yeah. So it, I, you know, I just think uh, I think this is a that is, if anything, something to celebrate. They came up with a story that used a cast that still had energy in it, and it wasn't cocoon. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was this was great, uh, and so I I think that's that's very exciting, and and it was time for Harv to go. I think he he had some some solid ideas. He had too much of his hands on the actual script. 
uh, of the films that he was in uh, involved with. And I, I think it was time. Now, now I'm stuck though envisioning Wilford Brimley as part of the crew. I think they, I think they missed an opportunity <laughs> the, there. He's the engineer, Wilf, Wilford Brimley. No, he should have been the the Klingon engineer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. Let's. Yeah, I just want to make a comment about the makeup, specifically the Klingon makeup. Was it not fantastic? It was really good. How how good? I I, I particularly love Plummer. The bald plumber with his uh, bolted-in eye patch, I think, is spectacular. Um, yep. No, I, I thought they were all really good. I love the the really uh, mysterious and and well lit judge in the chambers, yeah. using his sparking ball that he would hit. Um, yeah, and, no, I, and his I minions they, behind him, who I don't think were uh, Klingon. I think they were like servants of another race. You know, oh, uh, one of the things that's really interesting is you, if people. I'm serious. Go back and watch this movie, but just watch the Klingon foreheads. They every one of them is unique, and that's new in this show. They put so much attention to making incredibly unique and charismatic foreheads. They're like fingerprints. They are beautiful. You see so much texture and folds in them you know the uh um uh they, they you can see like the the way the ridges kind of come up out of the skull y- you can actually see the tension as the skin is being pulled uh, against it i mean i i found myself just transfixed by the attention to detail on these things in particular it's it's beautiful Beautiful. You, sa- you sound a little bit in love, Pete. I am so in love. I am in love. Shut it. I'll admit it. <laughs> I'm out there loud and proud. I'm not judging. Who am I to judge? <laughs> You're just, believe me, you are no one to judge. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. Who did uh, Who did the make? Who was in charge of the makeup? Do you have it in front of you? You know, it's funny because we'll get to this in the awards, but for best makeup, uh, Michael Mills, Ed French, and Richard Snell were nominated. Um, weirdly... Richard Snell was left out when it was nominated uh, for the same thing in the Academy of Sci-Fi, Fantasy, and Horror Films over in the Saturn Awards. And I was like, why Why are they leaving one of the wow. three out? I, I don't know if there was a, a difference between what they were actually bringing to the table or not, but yeah, there you go. So it looks like Walter Koenig had a, a script. Well, Chekhov had written a script, too. Yeah, I uh, thought that was... I, I think it gets to this point with these <laughs> franchises when these people are around long enough. They're all like, hey, you know... Uh, Nimoy's directed a couple. Shatner had his turn. I think I'll take a round myself. And so, yeah, so Koenig had a script concept. He said it involved creatures that he said were these alien creatures that basically were where the aliens in Alien had kind of evolved from. Um, and he said it was a very dark script, very warlike script. And in the end, everyone dies except for Spock and McCoy. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I wonder why they didn't go with your script, Walter. Oh dear. That's very funny. Uh, yeah. I'm surprised that I, I actually am equally surprised that Chekhov didn't live. Chekhov is the only character that lives. Everybody else dies. <laughs> right. Well, and, and so uh, obviously. Particularly that, telling that he killed Kirk. Yeah. Like that's, uh, yeah. Some, that's a message. So, well, so then, uh, you know, Mancuso over at Paramount, Frank Mancuso, who is the head or the chief over there. Um, he asked Nimoy to kind of come up with this film that would be a swan song. I think Paramount was really, you know, they were nervous because Five was a failure or they saw it as a failure. It's still financially uh, made money. But with the 25th anniversary of Star Trek coming up, they're like, well, we want to put something out there. And so 
uh, they went through all these iterations and finally he ended up with Nimoy and said, look, we want to come up with kind of the swan song for these guys. Um, it sounds like Nimoy actually came up with a story with Mark Rosenthal and Lawrence Connor where Kirk actually meets Picard. He wanted to kind of do this transition going over to the next generation. But the team of the next generation refused to take a break in their show schedule to do this. And, uh, you know, I mean, those TV schedules can be pretty aggressive. And obviously it wasn't the right window, so it didn't work. And so that's when Nimoy uh, went to Nicholas Meyer and they kind of came up with this whole idea of, you know, I mean, looking at modern times, you know, that Chernobyl had happened. Though, and so the wall with the the Cold War, the kind of the, the wall had fallen down and all this sort of stuff. And so like, what if we took down the wall in space? And so they came up with this whole idea and went and wrote it. And Meyer, along with his friend Denny Martin Flynn, kind of wrote the script and uh, and uh, came up with it. And here it is. It's, it's kind of an interesting little backstory that I didn't realize. I, uh, I, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about the director's cut. Did you which one did you watch? You know, I was looking at this because I didn't realize there was a director's cut. I watched the the original cut. The director's cut, I guess, Meyer did for the DVD that was released in like 2002 or 2004 yes. or something like that. When yes. they when they released the, the Blu-ray set in uh, 2009 to time it with the um, the new film, um, the, the reboot, they released uh, they that director's cut is not on it. They went back to the original cut, and they, there's no sign of the director's cut. I thought that was very telling. Well, I think it is. Although I'm curious, uh, I'm I'd, I'd like to tell you the the three major scenes or sequences that are on the director's cut that I I would like to your take, knowing that you haven't seen them. Right? You haven't seen the director's cut. Nope, never. Okay. All right. Mostly it's just trimming. Like when you watch it sort of side by side, you'll see some sequences are a little bit longer. You know, there's a sequence when Scotty is kind of dealing with the air conditioner and finds the the uniforms in the vent. He, he There's an, like a couple of extra cuts where he grabs his... He grabs his neck sort of cartoonishly. You know, he grabs his collar and he's like, hey, it's hot in here. Mm." You know, (laughs) somebody step on a duck. So uh, little things like that. A lot of fairly aggressive color timing, uh, you know, changes. But mostly it's just trimming a few frames here, a few frames there. There are three um, sequences, three scenes that I think are most interesting. Number one. It, when we're talking to the president in the beginning, and the president hangs up, uh, he's talking to somebody in the office about, you know, oh my gosh, the, there's this thing has happened in space. We need to figure out what we're going to do with, with Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise. Uh, the Klingon ambassador leaves, and in the theatrical cut, that's where the sequence ends. And in the director's cut, Admiral Cartwright and um, uh, the... Uh, so Brock, Admiral Cartwright, and Rene Auberginois, and the Romulan ambassador, they all come in. And uh, Auberginois presents a rescue plan, and it is a highly militaristic rescue plan. We're going to go in, we're going to kill some people. The president says, wait, there are going to be casualties. Uh, sir, you know, you, you, essentially, you got to break a few eggs. Right, where people are going to die, but we have to do this. And then uh, the colonel says, "Look, these men have literally saved the planet." And the president responds, "And now they're going to save it again by standing trial." So that is a it, it's a fairly significant scene that was cut for the theatrical version. Am I describing it in a way that is interesting to you? 
it's interesting. I'm trying to uh, you you had me st- uh, uh, stuck on René Bergenois because I don't remember seeing him. I I I know he was in the film, but I thought he was completely cut out. So is this the time when he was completely cut out? Because like, ah, he, he's Andy, not in the film anywhere now, is, is he? This is like foreshadowing, Andy. You are such an astute movie watcher. I'm going to let that hang, and I'm going to tell you about the next scene. Okay. Can I? <laughs> Please do. Okay. There is a long sequence where Spock and uh, uh, Scotty are talking about... Uh, Spock and Cotty and uh, Cotty. Spock and Scotty and Valeris are talking about the visual inspection of the torpedoes. And Spock actually says, "You know, I uh, our data banks, our data banks, uh, say that we have." And Scotty says, "We it's going to take us forever. We're going to have to visually inspect every single torpedo." Now later in the theatrical cut, we see him come back. He says, "No, we did not do this. I have visually inspected every single one of these torpedoes. They're all accounted for." And, well, this is the sequence where Spock says, "You gotta, you've got to do this. You have to actually do it." And uh, at one point, Valeris comes down and says, "Well, the the daughter of Chancellor Gorkon uh, has says uh, that you know these these guys need." to stand trial and scotty says i'll bet that klingon bitch killed her father and it's super aggressive and very strange coming from scotty uh and and that is essentially the sequence that's one that uh that was cut i i think it was probably cut for good reason and also because it's it reads to me as out of character for scotty well when would he have said that like before they went on trial because basically as soon as as soon as all this happens he and kirk beam over to the Klingon ship and then they're on trial and they he's not back until the end yeah you know and so Valeris is she doesn't say they need to stand trial she says it was she actually has a very strange thing uh, that she says she says actually they are being sent to Rurapente and it then she says it was on the news that's what she says. So it's it's after they find that out. So I, I misspoke about the the timing of it. But in, in any case, the se- I think the sequence was cut for other reasons. Um, but it's it's a, another fairly long series, like several minutes huh. uh, that have been added back to the film. Okay, then we get to our deep scene dive, which has arguably some of the most significant cuts. Now this is, we're talking about the uh, the interrogation of Valeris, which we'll talk more about uh, momentarily. There are entirely different takes that are used in the theater, or in the, the uh, cut here. So we actually see different, particularly in the actual mind meld, we have different a different take uh, of the, um, uh, of that conversation that Spock and Valeris have. In addition, uh, while he is interrogating Valeris in the uh, in the director's cut, they add these flashes to the faces of the people that we saw earlier in the film. When she's naming names, the names she's naming they fl- they cut away to these sort of dreamy, filtered clips of the people that were in that sequence I described as they're planning the rescue. The admirals come in and they're talking about the rescue mission. Does that make sense? Yep. So, so in the theatrical cut, those were removed, obviously, because we didn't see those people before. Right. Uh, ultimately, the there was nothing really substantive. There are a lot more extreme close-ups in the theatrical cut. The the director's cut, it has been everything takes a step back, right? So we just have much uh, close-ups, but more medium close-ups, uh, and and or, or you know stepping back even further to some medium shots. Finally. The very end, Andy. And this 
is pay dirt for you. When Scotty shoots the assassin, the assassin tumbles out of the glass, right? Yep. Falls to the floor. Somebody, I think it's Worf. Uh, Michael Dorn. Dorn's character is—is is it possible he's there? <laughs> I don't think it's he's don't there, think so. right? The attorney, but I swear it's his voice. Says he looks at it at the blood that's coming out. Now in the theatrical cut, I don't think we see any blood, but there is a huge pool of blood coming out, and it's obviously not Klingon blood. And we hear what I think is Michael Dorn's voice say, "That's not Klingon blood," which was actually maybe a little Sean Connery. So I forget. <laughs> And then they pull off Mission Impossible style, and it turns out it's not a Klingon assassin at all. It's Rene Aubergenois. So is he? So okay. So it's a mask. It's like a Scooby Doo mask. It's yep, not it's like a Scooby Doo mask. Because I was like, it, it would have been interesting if he was then one of those shapeshifters. Because now we've set oh, no. those up. <laughs> That's right. And he plays a shapeshifter in Deep Space Nine, which I think is delightful. Oh, does he? Yeah, Odo. Well, I knew he was in yeah, it. That would have just... been great. Yeah. So anyway, so that's it. So it turns out he was when he was cut from the movie, they cut a lot more because it turns out he's the assassin. Huh. Which is crazy. They could have had a Klingon do it anyway. I don't know why they needed the mask. So that was the substantive change in in the director's cut. Anything sway you? Well, it's it's interesting. I, I don't know. I feel like this cut worked pretty well. I'd have to see it. Sometimes I feel like director's cuts, when I hear what they've changed, I'm like, oh, it doesn't sound that great. But then I watch it, I'm like, oh, I actually kind of like it. Yeah. Um, what's your preference? I mean, do you like the director's cut or do you like this one? Well, when I got, I got the DVD in 2006, right? I got the collection DVD. And so I spent, you know, 10 years watching pretty much just the director's cut. And so it's all I knew for a long time. And I had forgotten the theatrical cut when from when it came out. So I picked it up on iTunes, and iTunes includes both versions. Uh, and so I, I the the remaster is so beautiful. Oh my goodness, it's so beautiful. It's hard not to watch that theatrical cut just because it's it's such a uh, they they it's such great attention to detail. It's such a beautiful presentation. I found myself super distracted, particularly in the interrogation scene by the cutaways, uh, and as a result, I feel like that. The once you get rid of that, once you get sort of trimmed down the the names, uh, you don't really need the rest of it. You don't need that hyper real, the hyper militaristic rescue sequence. I just I, I felt like it was it, it was better in the theatrical cut. So uh, I just thought it was interesting that they actually revealed the assassin. And once you once you reveal the assassin, you have to know a little bit about where the assassin came from, and that takes us back to the to the planning meeting with the president. And so I can sort of see how all these things are really tied together. And um, my preference is the theatrical cut, uh, but. Uh, but it's a, it makes for an interesting review. Well, I think it says a lot that uh, Nicholas Meyer and Paramount did not include it on the uh, the Blu-ray yeah. when they released yeah, that. Right. So, I listened to uh, Meyer's commentary, and he actually talks about how he loved the editing in the uh, scene we're going to do for the deep scene dive, and um and and as Valeris is kind of revealing everybody, it was funny listening to him because he still kind of sounded unsure as to whether he liked cutting to the various people he didn't mention at all that he had done that in a director's cut like he didn't even mention a director's cut which is weird and so i wonder if it's actually the same uh commentary and they just kind of used it and then they just had those gaps when the the new stuff came on in this in this in this commentary he's talking about it and he still is like yeah you know i kind of like you know it would have been interesting to have that like he doesn't sound like you know 
he's convinced still as far as which way is the right way. But I got to say, the way it plays right now, other than the fact that you really have to know your stuff and you have to do a little digging to really know who some of these people are, because Admiral Cartwright, I think when I watched this, I had no idea who Admiral Cartwright was. Um, the only reason I did on this most recent viewing is because we're doing this show and I'm, I'm paying much more attention to who's in it. And I recognized Brock Meyer from the fourth one and I, oh, he's Admiral Cartwright and then Brock Peters. Yes, sorry. Um, and, and so it's just, you know, I, I, I'm in a better mental place to kind of catch that sort of stuff. But I know when I saw this the first time, I had no idea who she was talking about. So to that end, I feel like. You know, somebody who's just kind of coming into the Star Trek world, I can see why that stuff would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, you know, it's it's interesting, but it felt a little bit handholdy. I think what we yeah. what we needed out of that was simply Admiral Cartwright. He sounds Federation-y. That seems like a thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that <laughs> seems like something we should be aware of. Uh, shall we talk about the? De- shall we do the deep scene dive? Shall we talk a little bit more about that sequence? We've Let's already do sort it. Of teased it enough. Yeah, absolutely. A deep scene dive. All right, this is uh, gosh. What are we? Are we saying it's one thirty-seven? The script that we're looking at is uh, that's linked in the show notes. We're saying it's pretty early because it, it, Valeris is actually listed as Savic, but it's very strange that it's Savic, and there is no change really in the way Kirk is introduced to her. Right? They, there's no acknowledgement that it's the same Savic from the other films. Considering that. At least according to kind of the writers um, from number three, it's very, or I think it was number four, it's very possible that Savick stayed behind because she was having Spock's baby. Right. And knowing that element of it, it's like, that's really strange then to have her on board and have her being this foil uh, for Spock uh, in this particular case. I was like, that's oh, kind yeah. of. Wow, kind of weird. This uh, this sequence uh, is the the confrontation of Valeris, where we she has been caught. She was caught in the medical bay. She had come to assassinate what she thought was uh, Yeoman Burke and Samno, uh, who she thought was already they were already dead. But due to a ruse played by Spock and Kirk, they they trapped her, and uh, and now she's standing in front of the view screen, directly opposite Kirk. And uh, they begin interrogating her. And in the process of the interrogation, uh, she is, she elects not to tell the truth. And Spock approaches her, uh, grabs her rather roughly, and uh, begins a mind meld with her that is, uh, that, that becomes, uh, that, that she attempts to block. And as a result, he ends up double mind melding her, putting both of his hands on her face and, and, you know, probing her uh, to the point that looks very uh, sort of a, a very violating event. Uh, and as a result, they get the news they need. Double mind meld all the way. The other, the old double mind, it's a double mind meld. What does it mean? So, I, you know, I, I like this scene for a couple of, of reasons. And the, the, the first is that I love the setup of it. I love that we get the scope of the entire crew, sort of the bridge crew, all in in sort of the the theater in the round of the interrogation. Everybody gets a view. Everybody gets a part. I think the the blocking of the sequence is very strong. Hell, even Scotty got to come up. <laughs> right? Even Scotty gets to come up. Uh, the, the camera is, it, it starts 
very wide, right? And and generally we get this beautiful sort of proscenium of, of the crew in front of us. And then the camera starts, we, we move in on Kirk, we move in on Valeris, we move in on Spock, and then suddenly out of nowhere the camera moves and the camera is mobile. And it is so jarring, that steady cam as it begins to move around Spock and Valeris that it, it's it's a visually shocking change that I think makes the scene something to celebrate. I think it's just great, and it totally fits with the violence that's going on on screen. So the the uh, the camera, I mean, Hiro Narita and the the Steadicam operators, uh, Dan Neese and Randy Nolan. Yeah, is that how you'd pronounce that? That's how Randy? I'd pronounce that. Yeah, that's how you'd pronounce that, Randy. Look, I think it's Randy. <laughs> Dan and Randy. <laughs> we'll go we'll go with that. I just think it's really beautiful to watch. What did you think of this? Yeah, it's it's a nice touch to have uh popping up like that. It's it's there's there are camera moves elsewhere in this scene that we're looking at, but they're very smooth like dolly moves as they're kind of pushing in on somebody or as like uh, Kirk has a right. great moment where he kind of, you know, kind of the realization of the of the moment hits him and he sits down and the camera just tilts down with him. You've got kind of pretty typical uh, camera moves throughout that work really nicely. But uh, then that steady cam kicks in um, as we're doing that mind meld. And um, and it really, I mean, it, it kind of, it's the steady cam that really kind of circles them. And it, there is a cut that kind of interrupts the steady cam, but otherwise it's really, I think it was actually designed as just one, uh, one shot that basically starts as, as, um, as Spock grabs her and, uh, and, and gets this intense uh, start of his mind meld. And then you kind of follow all the way around. It just cuts to Kirk that one time, but it's, it's really intense as the steady cam. It's just very intimate and personal. And we're right there as he's like mentally probing her for the answer and then does that double probe, as you said. And we hold on Kim Cattrall's face as that's happening. And it really, I don't know, for me, I register a bunch of like just pain and, and just anguish on her as she's basically getting like mentally raped. I mean, it was it was really intense, and it works really well, and and then it's also kind of a little like um, it really hits you afterward when Spock says she doesn't know. It's like, oh God, we just went through that, and she actually doesn't even know. I mean, it's it's done really well. It really makes it powerfully intimate and uh, in a horrifying way. Powerfully intimate and horrifying, and something that is so out of context f- from you know. I, I think to to go that far, Vulcan to Vulcan, it just comes off as so out of context. It's just shocking, right? Like it's not something you would ever imagine them to do. This is the the sort of violence that we alluded to. This time, it's it's emotional, sort of psychological violence that they're they're you know doing on one another. And um, I I find it just a, a great bit of. Uh, intensity. It's also a thing that you know, as I mentioned before. I mean, this is this is torture. This is uh, this is bamboo under the fingernails. Extreme measures, right? Yeah. I mean, this is extreme interrogation techniques. Well, to that end, what I found so interesting about it is uh, it, it made me think back to our conversation last week about Cybok and the history of Vulcans, and you mm-hmm. mentioned that you know your knowledge of it was that. 
they're they kind of in the past they had kind of closed off that emotion, but it was a much more aggressive emotion. It wasn't necessarily the giggling like version that Cybok had adopted. It really was much more intense and aggressive. And when Spock, I mean, he really gets intense, um, not just here, but even before when they catch Valeris and she's pointing the gun at him. He's like, you have to shoot and everything. And he stands up to her and then he just smacks her like he smacks that gun out of her arm, like with such just, you know, ferocity that it really kind of shocked me that it came from Spock. Um, And then with this, it's like this is a side of Spock that I think, you know, he is letting that emotional, angry Vulcan side out of himself. And I was like, this is really interesting. And uh, I I liked that he went there. I do, too. Uh, It feels I mean, it it feels like like an emotional rape, right? It's a mental rape sequence. And uh, I, I feel like we get that there is one cutaway that cements that for me. And there are very few cutaways, like reaction shots to other members of the crew. There are really precious few that are just straight up, we're going to cut to this character and see what they're seeing. And in this case, we cut away to Nichelle Nichols, and we get to see what's on her face. And she is the one who I think for us as an audience, cements the fact that she is watching on that bridge, what she considers to be a rape. And it is enormously effective even though it's you know got to be two seconds tops yeah uh, yeah her uh, her look on her face is quite a bit of anguish it's it's Mm -hmm. pretty powerful but i mean everybody knows that this you know we have this is for a greater good right i mean we have to we have to get this information uh, from this criminal so that we can stop a presidential assassination or a, a very big assassination and um, it's it's tough. I mean, none of them are stopping it. You know, it's it's. Uh, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, to that point, it's particularly coming off of this as a Nicholas Meyer joint. Isn't this the next uh, sort of iteration of his answer to the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one of the fewer the one? Yeah. Right. In this case, this is the other side of that coin. Um, you know, the the first time we got to see it in the form of self-sacrifice. In this case, we get to see what, what happens when the needs of the one and, and the, the one is somebody that is going to become a victim yeah, uh, because right. of our, our greater good. I, and I think it's a— Because the needs of the many, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is—that's one of the things that, that I think makes this scene really stand out for me. And there are a number of very strong sequences in this film. And I, I know this was not your your number one choice, but I appreciate you letting us kind of yammer on about it because I, I, it, 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 I find it— really affecting well i mean but it is a really powerful scene and so i am glad that we ended up talking about this particular scene because there's a lot of kind of emotion going on here and i think the fact that it is this this really intense look at the you know the what a vulcan mind meld can really be used for i mean it's kind of horrifying um just a side note to that i did find it kind of uh, horrifying and embarrassing, I think, is probably a fair way to say, that um, in talking about this particular scene and this particular moment, both Flynn and Meyer, the two writers, um, uh, it's, it's almost embarrassing the way they talk about it. Like Flynn, as he's watching this scene in the commentary, he's like, oh, I always found this to be so erotic. And Meyer says, oh, yeah, it was supposed to be sexy stuff. It's like, but this is like, I mean, we've talked about it. It's like mental rape. I mean, this is like this horrifying thing happening here. It really put me off that they were talking yeah, about super, it. Like that. <laughs> that is super creepy. That's not good. What? I'm not crazy say? about that. No. Oh, yeah. It's super sexy stuff. Oh, God. 
<laughs> yeah. Somebody's out of touch. I'm not a fan. Thank you for that. Okay, Herman Zimmerman is back. Andy, you asked probably one of the most important questions about Star Trek that I have never even thought about. <laughs> really? I've never thought oh, about that. I can't believe it. I feel like I, 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 I'm at a loss. I don't know how funny. to even approach it. Well, yeah. What, is, your, what is it? It's the fantastic, uh, the, what would you call them? Just like the earpieces that, like Uhura really is the one who's always wearing them. It's her wireless uh, headset. Yeah. It's like, why has somebody not designed those? Other than the fact that they're like incredibly bulky and doesn't look like it'd be fun to wear at all. But I mean, how often are we putting earbuds of some sort into our ears? It's like, it seems like Star Trek fans would eat it up to have those giant bulky earpieces hanging out of their ears while they're on the phone. I think so. And the fact that they don't, I, how often do we see her where it's actually like clipped to her ear? Isn't she always like holding it? No, she'll stick it in her ear. Like she'll she just jams it in there. I never really there, thought yeah. about it. Yeah, there. If oh, you if we're, even in old episodes, I mean, they're just like sitting in their ears. They're crazy, funky things. Yeah, I'm a I'm a terrible fan. I've never thought about this question. I, this is going to be the only thing that I think about now. <laughs> no, so you'll stupid. Watch it's them right every there. Time. <laughs> yep. Um, as a music guy, what do you think of Cliff uh, Eidelman? I think his score is fantastic. He did a really great job of developing some really like haunting themes for this. I love the mystery theme that we have that kind of kicks off the, the film. The main theme about kind of the plot, the conspiracy and everything. It's just, it's really uh, it driving. Uh, you know, he and Meyer, uh, particularly Meyer, he, when he came to this, he's just like, oh, I don't want the big bombastic uh, march in a major key that all the other films have. That's not what this story is about. You know, it's a totally different sort of film. I, I'm one of those people who, if it's a film that's in a franchise, I want the franchise themes to be in it. You know, the, it mm -hmm. makes sense mm -hmm. for them to be in it. Um, I'm a little miffed with Meyer for being, oh, I'm not going to have them at all. I'm glad that Eidelman at least integrated them into the end of the film so that we still had them. But it always irks me when when filmmakers and their composers are like, oh, let's not do it because we're going to be different. You know, it just it it just sets me off. It really does. That being said, I really think Eidelman does some great stuff here. I love that uh, when it comes to uh, Kirk and McCoy getting taken to Ruapente, you get this fantastic like Klingon chanting sort of music that's going on. Mm -hmm. And the Klingon chant is actually the Klingons saying to be or not to be. And I'm like, that is so clever. What a great way to kind of keep integrating that into the story. So I, I really like what Eidelman does here. Yeah, I do too. I, I really, I love it. And it's been, it's been such a treat listening to it kind of throughout the day. I think it's a great score. Um, editing by Ronald Roos and William Hoy, um, uh, which is, uh, you know, in terms of the deep scene dive, I, I think it's great. And it's, it's made better with the restraint of the theatrical version and not the, uh, not the other. And you made me think about it, like maintaining just that single cut um, in the the Steadicam sequence uh, is is so much better than continuing to cut away. And it, it's the cutaway in the director's cut is it's not good. Like it's that dreamy sepia sort of it, it almost feels like we're cutting away to it during a. Um, intro sequence to like Bewitched, you know, where they, it, it, the TV show where they show you like the face uh, in context of a show, but with no sound, right? And you just see like, oh, it's, it's the name of the actor who played, that's what it looks like. Uh, and, and so it's not good. And, and so the, you know, I think some of the editing choices are just really strong in the sequence in the movie overall. 
Yeah, I, I think so too. And I, I really appreciate how this, uh, this particular deep scene dive is edited because I do think they found the right way to pace it for the theatrical cut. I think what we see is uh, such a great sequence that defines um, the, the way the relationship between Spock and Kirk stands at that point. And, and Spock in this scene becomes the bulldog, weirdly, right? He becomes the thug to get the answers, uh, that Kirk needs, and that's uh, you know that's not generally the relationship that they have. Uh, so it's it's another bit of uniqueness. And I think it plays interestingly because you have because uh, she really hits Kirk hard. I think by saying you know you know the Klingons should be you know they should be killed. They killed my son. I mm-hmm. mean he, she is only using his words to justify her actions. And it hits him that he's like, she's right. I mean, I said all this stuff. The Klingons should be ended, you know. And it, I, I think it, it's a it's a really interesting moment for Kirk, where it's like, all of a sudden, it's like she's she's holding up that mirror that he's been avoiding, and and he's seeing himself, and he's just like, she's right. I am that awful person who wanted exactly what she's doing. Oh, that's great. In that context, you know, Spock is almost coming to his defense, too, you know, the the defender of the honor of the captain. Yeah. Um, I, I really like that. Sound by George Waters and F. Hudson Miller. I really like the sound of this because I love that you can really hear the ship. Well, I also love during the, just the sound during the the um, mind meld. It's just mm-hmm. it's it's just intense. Like the way that you're kind of it's almost very whispery. And and I love how as she's saying it, he's saying it, and um and you just kind of get this this intense kind of whisperiness of of things that are happening. I, it's it's really creepy and haunting. I yeah. think it and and the heartbeat kind of comes in you know when you get that mind melt heartbeat yeah. music kicks in yeah i mean i i am glad that we ended up picking the scene because i think it highlights a lot of these moments that you don't normally look at but it's it really makes for a strong scene you got a couple uh, little bits of trivia yeah just a, a funny bit that i i I thought it was interesting. Uh, the Chagall painting that Valeris is looking at when she's talking to Spock in his quarters, um, it's actually a real Chagall painting that's in there, which I thought uh, was kind of mind-blowing. I guess Nimoy had it in his uh, personal collection and brought it to the set to be <laughs> be in the scene. I don't know what to say about that, but wow. Unrelated. <laughs> unrelated. Nimoy apparently had quite a collection, <laughs> a uh, personal collection. Very interesting. I, I got I got some framed posters. Yeah, that's right. Why don't I just bring in my Chagall? Yeah, let's just, you know, we can hang, have that in there. And then you actually found the connection to Star Trek Voyager. I've never seen an episode of Voyager, so I'm sure you have, and I'm sure you remember this particular episode. Um, I just thought it was really interesting that there was an episode of Voyager called Flashback. Um, it was, I think, the second episode of the third season where um, they uh, they go back in time, I guess, and they end up um, meeting uh, Sulu and Rand on the, uh, on, I, I don't know if they're on the Excelsior or what, I'm not sure of the exact story, but I just thought it was interesting that they actually go back to a point in time that's directly related to this film and uh, and some of the events that are taking place involving it. I thought that was really interesting. I don't know what the intention was, but there is there. It's very much a um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead 
kind of a thing, right? Where you're no oh. longer following the principal characters, you're following that. It's not it's not necessarily a comedy, but that's the feeling that I get when I watch this episode. Um, I, I find it very funny. Um, they've done some other things too. Deep Space Nine went back to the original series, The Trouble with Tribbles, uh, and so they've done kind of sort of these jumping time loop. Uh, efforts before uh, this one, I, I I I like a lot. I mean, I think it's it's fun. It was particularly fun to see Hikaru Sulu in the background. You know, it's it's always fun to see them <laughs> do this, and <laughs> I really like it. So anyway, yes, yeah, that that's a good note. So funny. How did it do at awards season? You know, pretty well for the genre. It, it got two wins, seven nominations. I already mentioned at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for best makeup. Michael Mills, Ed French, and Richard Snell, but they it lost to Terminator 2, Judgment Day, uh, Stan Winston and Jeff Don, rightly so. Uh, and Best Effects, Sound Effects Editing, uh, George Waters and F. Hudson Miller were nominated, but also lost to Terminator 2. And uh, then over at the Saturn Awards, weirdly, I couldn't quite figure out why this ended up in the 1992 Saturn Awards, not 1991 when the film came out. It must just be a cutoff date thing. Um, otherwise, I guarantee that Terminator 2 would have uh, beaten it as well. Um, but it ended up uh, getting nominated for, uh, I think, five awards over there at the Saturn Awards. And it ended up winning the best sci-fi film, um, the only time that a Star Trek film has ever won this award. Um, it beat Alien 3, Free Jack, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, Lawnmower Man, and Memoirs of an Invisible Man. So I can't say it had tough competition. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kim Cattrall was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Isabella Rossellini in Death Becomes Her. Uh, Meyer and Flynn were nominated for Best Writing, but they lost to James V. Hart for Dracula. Also, Dracula took uh, Best Costumes. Aiko Ishioka for the amazing costumes in that film beat Dodie Shepard. And this is where Michael Mills and Ed French were nominated for Best Makeup. Richard Snell was snubbed, apparently, but uh, they did lose to Stan Winston and Vey Neal for Batman Returns. Um uh, and this is kind of just an aside for you, but I, I thought this was kind of interesting. In the world of the Saturn Awards, the the sci-fi, fantasy, and horror films, um, the, the, like I said, this was the only one that ever won the um, the best sci-fi film. Um, but 11 of the 13 Star Trek films have been nominated for best sci-fi films. Can you guess which two were not nominated? Uh, generations. Okay, got that one right. Was it four? No, it was five. Really? Oh, I should have. I yeah, should have said that. Yeah, you should have said right. five. Um, I definitely but, should have said. Five. But it was surprising to me that uh, some of our upcoming ones um, were still nominated. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just goes to show, I guess, what uh, uh, what, uh, what maybe it's just sometimes there's just a, a little bit of a dearth of of films to nominate in given years. But I mean, you look at what it's lost to in some of its years and it totally makes sense like like yeah up through star trek 6 we had alien et the terminator and aliens beat star trek 1 through 4 yeah so ob- of course right yeah, yeah makes, makes sense. total sense makes sense so I, I do think that the Michael Mills and Ed French is a snub. The the makeup in Batman Returns I, I don't think holds a candle to what they did in Star Trek. I think the reason here's here's my guess as to why it lost in that particular category. Um seeing the penguin in Batman Returns was something new and different. Seeing Klingons, we'd been seeing Klingons for quite a while and I think just voting people go they're just, you know, they're just doing Klingons again. And so they don't vote for it. 
not aware perhaps of what they've changed with Klingons, how they've reworked Klingons, all that sort of stuff. I think that's This is uh, the problem, Andy, sense. with voting people. That is what you've just said. <laughs> the problem with voting people. That's right. <laughs> how did it uh how did it do at the box office? Tell me it did okay. Well, yeah, it did okay. I needed you to really counter with more enthusiasm. <laughs> Uh, no, Nick Meyer was given $27 million, uh, definitely more than he had to play with when he did Con, but a drop from what Shatner had received for The Final Frontier, which was $33 million. This was about $47.8 million in today's dollars. It ended up opening uh, December 6th, 1991, as the big release of the weekend. Opening at number one, grossing more than $18 million in its opening weekend, which was a record for the franchise, actually, for uh, opening weekends. Unfortunately, it dropped right away when Hook and the Last Boy Scout opened the following weekend. Uh, the movie did go on to make $74.9 million domestically and $22 million internationally for a total gross of $171.5 million in today's dollars. This gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.1 million. Weirdly, this puts it in second to last place thus far, just above the final frontier when it comes to adjusted profit per finished minute. It's wow. the uh, yeah, it's the same slot it's in when looking at just adjusted gross. It only jumps one place when looking at the profit to cost ratio too. So I don't know if it's just the performance is a reflection of the cultural disinterest in Star Trek films at the time, or like I mentioned at the beginning, or having Next Generation uh, on TV uh, is just starting. I think it's fifth season. If people were ready to move on to the new crew. Um, regardless, it was still profitable enough to celebrate the 25th anniversary and to allow for the Next Generation crew to get their turn in cinemas. At least they got a turn. Everybody's getting a turn. <laughs> That's right. Except for uh, Walter Koenig. Except for Walter <laughs> Koenig and the Alien crossover. I, so th this is my favorite one. I said it. It's better than Khan. It, it, Christopher Plummer's Colonel Klang is uh, wonderful and and you know a subtle warrior he doesn't look as klingony and I, I you know i my understanding is that was by request he wanted to be less klingony than the other klingons around him uh which which probably goes even more to some some of the to to the statement on race that that this film is making uh which which i think makes it that much more interesting and resonant and maybe it it's even more perfect for the time right now uh, to be watching this movie um, because for me it is uh, it, it represents some of the very best of Trek. Well, it says a lot that in a story that is dealing with kind of you know race issues essentially, Nicholas Meyer asked like Brock Peters to kind of have this racist speech that he gives, you know, and he asked Nichelle Nichols to to say some things that she was just like I'm uh, too uncomfortable to say these things. Um, like the guest who's coming to dinner line, you know, she was, yeah. she thought it was, it was, uh, it was too much for her to say something like that because of what it represented with the film and, and just everything. And so it's interesting that it went to places that really made some people uncomfortable, but I think it, it tells the story about finding ways to come together and how hard it can be. Gorkon has that great line about, you know, Hey, you know, we're the ones that are going to have the hardest time with this. Um, it made it really interesting, and I think it made it understandable and and relatable. And I think they do a really uh, stellar job of telling the story, uh, even with the quibbles that I have with it. I think they do a good job here. And as a sign-off, I, I think this is also just important to note, as the sign-off to 
uh, for, to the franchise, to this this group of seven that we've been religiously following through these last six films, I think they do a really good job of of kind of giving them their due. And you've got that great sign off at the end where, um, you know, the second start of the right, and it kind of turns it into this, you know, we're going to never grow up, we're just going to go and disappear off into the horizon and be... Um, be doing this for the rest of our lives. That's that's what we will become. You know this this um, uh, just kind of this this idea of who these people are, which I thought was just fantastic the way they ended it. And you've got that great shot, and then you've got the signatures and everything. I thought that they couldn't have found a better way to end it with this whole crew. Hallelujah! Let's rank it. <laughs> Let's do it. All right, head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, or you can just swipe over in your show notes and you'll see the link to Flickchart, and that'll take you right to this movie, or you can add it to your list, and let's see it how it stacks up against ours. First up, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Star Trek VI, please. Star Trek VI. Star Trek VI or Seven Samurai? Uh, Star Trek VI. Yeah, I'll go with Star Trek VI also. Star Trek Six or Star Trek Two? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there it is. I, I sort of staked myself on it, so I'm going to go with Star Trek Six. You sure did. You know, it's funny. I um, really love these two films. Um, I have some quibbles with both of them. I I kind of feel I need to just kind of stick with Star Trek Two still. I'm pretty wishy-washy right now. Maybe it's just because we've been talking about this one for so long, but yeah. I'm going to just I'm going to stick with 2 for the time being though. Let's see what happens. Let's do it. All right, ready? All right, here we go. 1, one 2, two three, 3 paper. Scissors. Ah. Sorry. Curses. Now I feel guilty. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Star you Trek should. 6 or The Shining. I, I I'm going to put on I'm going to put on Star Trek 6, yeah. Star Trek 6 or National Lampoon's Vacation. Star Trek Six. Oh, boy, I'm really. I know you hate hearing it come out of my mouth, but I'm tempted to say vacation. I I know, I know. <sighs> Just such a place <laughs> in my heart with that one. I I have to say vacation. Sorry. Okay. All, All right. right. Vacation. All right. Ready. Uh, one. One. Two. Oh, two. Sorry. Two. Three. Three. Scissors. Paper. You you took it there. I did. I did you. Yeah, I was that paper. a delay or did you wait? No, I didn't wait. <laughs> did you? Did you throw it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna throw it. If I'm gonna throw, right. I'll just give it to you. Star Trek Six or The Matrix? I am going to say The Matrix. This one does represent a challenge for me. I'm. I need to see if it represents a significant challenge. Yes, it does. I'm going to say uh, Star Trek Six. Okay. I'm I'm one. not changing my vote. The Matrix it is. So ready? Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually okay if I lose on this one. I'm not gonna feel bad. Okay. Here we go. One, one two, two, three, three rock. Scissors. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Star Trek six or spirited away. I'll say Star Trek Six. Yeah, Star Trek Six. Star Trek Six or the Fisher King? I'll say the Fisher King. Uh I will uh, say Star Trek Six. All right, here we go. Yeah. One, two, three, paper, scissors, scissors. paper. Oh, we got it. Mm. Look at you. All right. Well, there we are. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country is number 45 on our chart out of 315. 
Okay, so what is it for on your personal chart? I, I re-ranked it after watching it. It was in the, I think, the 800 range um, when I uh, first looked and I re-ranked it. And it jumped up to 143 out of 38.14. So that puts it at a 96%. This is pretty high up there on my chart. That is pretty high up there. I This is the first one I think I legitimately have you beat. Uh, out of 996 movies, I have this at number 11 which is, Oof. I mean, it's right up there. That's pretty high. You're at it's like, pretty what, high. 99%? 99%, yeah. And so uh, it's it, letterbox.com slash the next reel. Uh, it's a hard five star with a heart. I was really debating, uh, you know, how much did my quibbles bother me with this particular film? And I've been fluctuating between four and then four and a half and then five and then four and a half and then four. And I've been going back and forth. But I really think, you know, the quibbles in here aren't that bothersome to me. They really aren't. Like the biggest one is when Iman gets phasered. And it's not, you know, it's, I, I kind of roll my eyes and chuckle a little bit. And I'm like, oh, God, Kirk's so lucky. But it doesn't bother me so much. So I, I think I am going to give it a five star. Man, it feels like you really had to work for it, though. I did. It's like probably, a, you know, a 4.76. So I round yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your star rating is incredible. <laughs> You go out to six decimal points. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh. Six places. That's good. I uh, no, I'm glad to hear it. I'm. Uh, this is definitely uh, the top Trek film for me uh, so far. It's been a long. It's been longer. Well, no, that's not true. It's actually I since I watched the last time I watched all these, I watched them in order, uh, and so I have seen them more recently. But this still stands up. Uh, as uh, as just a terrific film, absolutely my favorite of the original cast, uh, and I think just such a celebration of great, straight up great filmmaking with, um, and, and what it says about just using rich characters and not just always playing for youth. I think it's a it's a great lesson. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Here, here. Well, uh, I guess I I don't really need to say it, but where do we go from here? We are going to be, uh, yeah, this is kind of the crossover film, Star Trek Generations. And it'll be an interesting one to talk about, especially on the heels of this one. Um, But that's what we're doing next. And then on our Saturday matinee this coming weekend, uh, we're going to be doing our list, tying it into this film. We're going to be doing our uh, favorite uh, assassination films or films that kind of where the plot involves an assassination. And you, you have introduced a number of additional rules that I really like. So I can't wait to talk about this. You've, yeah. you've made it harder. I have. Or uh, yeah. Yeah, a little more challenging, I think. So it should be fun. Well, I'm really excited about that, Andy. I think it's, uh, I, I love doing the Saturday matinee show, and especially outdoor casting. I think I might be outdoors again with my dog. <laughs> this is, that's the, if, if anything great has come out of this whole experience, it's that I can podcast with my dog and not feel, uh, not worry about it. Gotta that's love it. that. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to the show. We sh- certainly appreciate your time and attention because you know what they say when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. (laughs) 
Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, shall we go down or up? Uh, let's go up. Well, then I'm coming at you with a one star Ooh. from uh, two years ago. There are only three one stars. One of them is for the Amazon service. And one of them is impenetrable. <laughs> New wave. <laughs> Otour. And one of them is from Pete. And he says, Spock and McCoy are dead. They look dead in the movie, too. I kept expecting Shatner to start shilling for Priceline. We are all getting too old for this. Every time I see a Klingon, I think of walnuts. It makes me hungry and I need a snack. Don't watch this movie unless you bring plenty of snacks. <laughs> walnuts, preferably. Every time I see a Klingon, I think of walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. What's yours? Well, I've got a three-star by Brian P. Freeze, who says, simply... I think they should have stopped with the whales. Mm. Who needs any more of this mm. <laughs> crap? <laughs> really done. <sighs> oh. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>